On this episode of Black Women Voices, we are talking with four women navigating graduate school. At the master's level, we have Brianna Harris, a graduate student with a concentration in professional counseling and college student affairs. Brianna just completed her first year in the program. Also, we have Tiara Jones, who is set to graduate in December 2019 with a degree in adult education. At the doctorate level, we have Carmen Jones, a third-year student pursuing a Ph.D. in higher education administration, and Tynez Jones, a fourth-year doctoral candidate within the School of Education. Welcome back to Black Women Voices. Thank you all for tuning in today. This is episode five of Black Women Voices, and today is all about Black women, of course, and navigating the graduate school journey. So today I am very, very excited because we not only have one special guest, but today we have four. Um, And I'm very excited for these ladies to share with us their journeys. Today we have joining us Miss Brianna Harris, Miss Tiara Jones, Miss Carmen Jones, and Miss Tynez Jones. All the Joneses. I've got all the Joneses today. Kicking it with the Joneses. Kicking <laughs> it with the Joneses. <laughs> so, hello, ladies, and welcome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for having us. So, our first question um, for you all today is um, How did you decide on the school and the program um, that you're currently in? Yeah, so I'm currently in a master's program, um, and so my undergrad um, institution was a PWI and um, the black population is probably somewhere around like 6%. So I think for me, it was really important that I went to a school where I didn't feel so like by myself anymore. And so it was really important for me, especially in a cohort style that I felt like I was on a campus and in a program where I saw myself more represented. Um, and so when I was doing like my research on um, schools and everything, I wasn't just looking at um, like the programs, but also looking at like the demographics, those that surrounding those schools, like just different things like that. Um, and I also um, was able to set up like different phone calls and stuff with directors for the programs that I was applying to. And so just getting being able to like talk to them and see like what are the things that they're doing and what do they offer their students and so I think for me that was really helpful in the process just because um, a few of the directors that I talked to like were like yeah let me know when you send your app in so like just for me that was um, really helpful and I think ultimately the program that I did choose um, I chose it because um, not only with the campus demographics but um, just when I went to the interview weekend and everything just seeing um, how diverse my program is to me that was really really important so I think um, and it's also a professional counseling based higher ed program and so that was also really important to me too so just kind of being able to wrap everything that I kind of wanted into one and so I think I was able to find that in my grad program. I uh, chose A&T um, because I actually am from Greensboro I literally grew up hearing the drums the band everything. So I don't have as much diverse experience. I just always knew that being a first-gen college student, I definitely wanted to go to an HBCU. Um, so I did my undergrad and my graduate degree at a and um, What I love most about my experience and what made me want to go back was in undergrad, I had a lot of things that really made me such a non-traditional student. Um, I did not live on campus. I did not really get 
you know, academically advised properly. Um, so I kind of just put myself through my undergrad program after changing majors multiple times. Um, when I got into grad, I chose the adult ed program at A&T because it really just stood out to me more than anything. Um, it didn't seem like a very rigorous program. Um, and I just wanted to kind of get a different experience than what I had in graduate school. So, I mean, undergrad. So um, that experience has been different for me. I have made a lot of connections. My professors and advisors have been very um, hands-on with me. And that has really turned my experience around from what I did have in undergrad. So that's just a little bit about myself. So uh, this is Carmen. I chose Iowa State uh, based off of the program that I currently work for. Um, so it's called Science Found. And like Tana has mentioned, it's a program for underrepresented students in STEM. And it reminded me a lot of TRIO programs. I'm a product of TRIO. Uh, and so working with, <laughs> working with students of color who are, you know, working, trying to access college, working with their families, um, you know, from the time they're in seventh grade until they graduate college. And so it was really beneficial for me. So I came out here, visited the school, um, talked with the program director at the time, and just understanding what their goals are as far as helping underrepresented students succeed in, succeed in STEM. That's why I chose Iowa State. Uh, plus, I grew up in the South, and so I really wanted to do something different. It's not like me to just leave the South and leave my family and leave my home and go somewhere else. I was like, oh, I'll just go to Iowa. Uh, when I first got here, I was like, I don't know that this was a good idea, but I'm still here um, <laughs> four, what, three years later, four years later. So, you know, I'm glad that I came. I've enjoyed the experience thus far. Um, but yeah, and one of the other reasons was they are covering my tuition. And so there aren't a lot of programs that I could find that were in near Atlanta or in South Carolina that paid the tuition for doc students. And so I was like, I don't want any more student debt. And so it'd be great if I could go to a program that covered my tuition. And it's been great because I met another Jones. He's been really great, really helpful. <laughs> um, you know, having another um, person here who's just, like I said, just been phenomenal in helping me get through this. But um, it's been it's been pretty good so far. So, and I think uh, for this question for me, it was less about uh, deciding on the school. It was more about deciding on the program um, because I was in Iowa, or I'm in Iowa because my husband is a school administrator here. So I was faculty over in the Department of Kinesiology uh, serving as a lecturer and I had done that for about four years um, when I decided that basically lecturers get paid very little but they're doing the bulk of the work um, so I was teaching maybe about 400 students a semester teaching five classes most of the other faculty um, tenure-track faculty only taught one class a semester along with their research so I was like it'll be foolish for me not to just go ahead and finish um, and I knew that I wanted to do uh, research surrounding health disparities, uh, looking at the inequalities and inequities and uh, how students learn about health. Uh, so I decided to go over to the School of Education so I can conquer two things. One, I wanted to get the degree um, in social cultural education um, and learn how to learn about critical theories, but also learn how to teach uh, students how to um, learn about equities and, uh, and inequities and stuff like that. And then um, I also wanted to do qualitative research. Um, and so that was a push for me to go over to the School of Education. So teaching, learning, um, and research. So I was a quantitative researcher previously um, for my other research. Um, and I just felt like it was something missing. So the School of Education provided an opportunity for me to kind of dig deeper and to learn about um, 
critical theories and so forth, um, do qualitative research and to gain some type of understanding of how students learn. So, um, and I didn't mention this before, but we have, um, today we have students who are both in the master's level programs as well as the doctoral programs. And so um, something that you touched on, Tierra, that I wanted to ask you all uh, was for you all who are in the master's programs, um, what would you say was that uh, difference, I guess, in transitioning from undergrad to grad school? And who are in the doctoral program, um, what is that difference from the master's level to the doctoral level? For me, um, the transition from undergrad to graduate was, it was unique. Um, first and foremost, I did not tell you all this, but I have three daughters. I'm only about to be 27 years old. So um, my undergrad experience was very, very, very non-traditional um, from the start. And um, I did not get what I feel like I'm getting now. I feel like I have a better understanding of higher ed in general, um, not only as a aspiring faculty member, but also as a student. Um, and it's it's not as it's not as uh, bad as I thought it would be. You know, as an undergrad student, you always hear, "Oh, getting the master's is so hard." I really think the the main thing for me is just being able to balance being a mom, a full time educator, and trying to be a grad student more than anything. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as the bulk of what I have to do, I feel like I have a lot more time to get things done. Um, I have a lot more time to uh, focus. And I'm doing a lot better in grad school than I than I was in undergrad. I'm not undergrad, y'all. It was just bad. <laughs> Come on, girl. <laughs> uh, I guess for me, um, the transition, so I graduated undergrad in August and I started my program in August wow. <laughs> so, so it was really fast-paced um, and the transitional period for me was really really hard um, mainly because I also moved states um, so I went from Tennessee to Georgia and so I don't I didn't know anybody here so I think um, for that it just kind of and having to navigate like I'm a grad student it's really hard to make friends in grad school like so so just being able to like try to figure out where my comfort zone was again because my comfort zone was in Tennessee on that campus and so trying to recreate a level of comfort for me was really hard especially um, I have an assistantship as well um, and so trying to figure out how to balance school and how to balance a job and how to balance you know all these other things um, so I think mostly for me, it was just the adjustment period and the traffic. I feel like I'm still transitioning. Um, and so just trying to figure out um, my level of comfort in a new place, again, was probably the, the hardest part <laughs> of, uh, of going into a grad program for me. Um, and I'll say for me, transitioning from a master's to a doc program, um, the college I came from in Atlanta was more focused on teaching. The university I'm at now is a research one. And so that was a huge transition because there's such a huge focus, of course, on research and on writing and, you know, presenting at conferences and all of this. And the master's program, I don't feel like we did a lot of, well, we didn't do a lot of that. And so that struggle of, okay, I really got to be like writing all the time. I need to be reading all the time, thinking I can like, you know, have weekends to myself and kind of, you know, take it easy. That is not the case in a doc program, especially at a research one which is one of the re you know, reasons I chose Iowa State is because you know, they're so well known and because they're so, uh, because of the reputation um, of the program. But 
it was a real, uh, it was a struggle that first year, just trying to figure out how to navigate that thinking like, oh, I'm a great writer. I'm, you know, really great at this. And I get here and I'm like, mm, I don't know, you know, so I got some, some, some feedback, you know, from professors and it was helpful, but it showed me that that difference. And I guess maybe it could be the same with undergrad to master's like that going from master's to doc programs. That is a, that's a very interesting transition. And so that first year, I think just kind of humbles you and like, okay, you got to get it together. You got to write more, you got to practice, um, you know, be okay with getting feedback whether it's critical or not, and just being able to um, work on your writing. Um, so it was interesting uh, being able to transition from the master's to the, to the doc program. And again, going from um, a program so focused on teaching to one that was high intensity research, um, but it's, it's, it's coming along. And I, I would have to say um, my transition, um, I was, a, I think, a working adult for, for a while. So I was an exercise specialist for a wellness center um, I did health coaching and then I went on to do lecturing and then I decided to just stop and go to school full time. So it was, it, it probably took a, an, a great adjustment. Like the, I would say the first year just to teach yourself how to study again and how to be a student. So I knew how to teach and I knew the expectations of what, what happens in the classroom, but tr trying to let now make yourself become the student and as Carmen said, to sit down and write, uh, it's not just about me getting in front of the classroom and talk, but now I had to focus on the writing piece and the research piece. It was a little bit different. And so, um, uh, but it was a, a, it was a transition that I was really um, looking forward to and a challenge that I wanted to embrace. So I didn't, as most professionals do, I didn't do part-time graduate school. I decided to go full-time just so that I can finish in a reasonable amount of time um, instead of going for like 10 years or whatever people do to, to finish their degree. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you um, said some great things. So first of all, um, I want, I want to go back to uh, Miss Brianna. How I'm trying to wrap my head around it, and, and I think your explanation may make sense to me. How did you end a program, your undergrad in August, mm -hmm. start your grad program in August, too? And, and relocate. Right. And, yeah, and relocate it. Like, what are you doing, girl? What kind of wings do you have? Right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, I, it was um, it's funny because I started, we started classes before I had even officially graduated so like mm -hmm. I had to turn in like a degree audit to prove that I was gonna have a degree um, but um, I think for me I, I feel like I, I rushed into it one because during undergrad I actually what should have been my senior year I took a year off for like mental health reasons and so I think when I came back I just felt like I was so behind um, and so I like I rushed myself so I was like I gotta go to grad school like and so um, like thinking back, I probably, you know, probably could have been it from a gap year, but I think I was just so hard pressed with not taking any more years off from school or just kind of going straight into it um, that I kind of just pushed myself and definitely like relocated and everything because um, I didn't move. So I was in Knoxville up until like the end of July because I also was working and taking classes and so it was like I was in Memphis for all of a week before it was time to move to Georgia so so it was it was just a lot it was really fast paced and I think I'm just now starting to like finally get settled and like finally 
find find a groove and everything. So I definitely wouldn't suggest it to other people if you don't get, the, especially if you don't get the summer off. Like I think going straight straight through is just a lot. <laughs> I guess, but I made it. So <laughs> wow, that is a lot. Okay, mm-hmm. I I just had to ask that because I was trying to wrap my head around how that would impact you mentally and then when you said you took a year off for mental health which I commend you on that um and then getting right back into it and and pushing through so that's yes girl yes (laughs) (laughs) wow well and you know it also kind of some of the things that you all have been talking about and thinking about the challenges and the things that you've had to kind of you know kind of overcome in spite of that like how do you think your journey as a grad student um, looks different for you being black identified women versus you know your non-colleagues of color like what does that how how in the ways that you show up in the ways that you operate in those programs how does it look different um, as opposed to your non-colleagues of color For me, it looks a lot different because I have several identities as an African-American woman in higher ed. I'm young. Um, I have three children. I am a single mother. You know what I'm saying? So for me, sometimes I might have to bring my kids to school, you know, whereas on the outside looking in, I won't make a generalization, but on the outside looking in, you know, the white counterparts that I do know or the ones that are not of color, rather, they seem to have more of a support system. um, And that may have been something that has been built up for them. So you also have to look at the backgrounds of people. Like I didn't come from a wealthy background. I'm a first gen student. I have three kids. I'm a single mom. So in the eyes of my peers who I grew up with, it's like, girl, you doing it, you know, but in my mind, it's like the same thing Brianna said, you know, I took a, a year off when I was supposed to be graduating but I played so much in undergrad. It took me three years to finish when I came back. So when mm-hmm. I finished, it was like, dang, I'm behind all my peers. Let me get to grad school. You know, let me find a program that interests me and will challenge me. And I found that. So doing my undergrad at the same school as my grad, that was a that was an easy transition. But mm-hmm. when I graduated, when I got back in undergrad, I had one kid. By the time I graduated, I had two kids. Uh-huh. By the time I got my master's program, I was about to have another baby. So by the time I finished my first year of grad, I had my third kid. So it's really hard. It's really a hard transition, you know, but it's something that I am determined to finish. Um, So if anything, that motivates me uh, as a black woman, because we do have so many stereotypes against us, so many negative ones, especially women who come from my background. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I think that's the thing. I mean, oftentimes people only see one dimension. They just see you showing up in class, but they have no idea what you had to go through to get there. Like they didn't know that you were dealing with all these, all these other instances that anybody else, it would cause anyone else to say, you know what? I'm gonna have to push the pause button. I'm not going to be able to do all of that. So it's just even making it and showing up it says something and it does something differently than for our other non-colleagues of color. Yeah. Anybody else? How does, how does, how does that operate for you all too? Um, I can definitely identify with Tierra because um, I have four, four children and, um, and you know, you are very aware of your space and your time. 
um, and how you, you know, you experience things, uh, whether it's in or outside of the classroom, um, sporting events that you need to do when you know you have a paper due um, and so forth. Um, but actually, you know, being at a PWI, which is different from Tierra, you notice and you're very aware your race is very salient um, mm -hmm. and, and your gender because this field is occupied by mostly white males, right? And so, you know, right away and you have to learn how to uh, address people and call people out when they try to talk over you yes. or you can notice very clearly the isolation that you may feel in a space when maybe you're participating in group work which happens a lot in education I thought that was pretty weird when I came to education all this <laughs> talking and right all this stuff. Um, but but you notice you 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 pay attention and you know it can be difficult it makes you question a lot you know, what you bring to the table and how you contribute. But then I've learned over time that, you know, you just bring up all of who you are and people just have to deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, what I can definitely tell is students, grad students who are not students of color, just white students overall, like it's, it's easier for them. And they're very, um, sometimes they're just not aware of what we have to deal with and how much harder we have to work. Um, and I noticed that just in the jobs I've had before here, like what I had to do as far as working more hours, like putting out just more yes. effort, being there, like showing up, making sure someone sees my face. It's the same thing here. Like people need to see, okay, Carmen's working hard. Like I have to do double time what they do, you know, as far as right. making my research is something that I guess matters or it's rigorous enough or making sure that I'm showing up for events or I'm showing up to do things and you know, it's just a date. We have to put forth a lot more effort. Um, and that's very obvious. And it's always uh, interesting to me to see how confused they are when I say things like that. Um, and when I mean they, white students, just like, they don't understand like, oh, you have to do that. You had to do that. Well, why do you feel like you needed to do it? It's like, they really are oblivious to a lot of the things that we have to go through to be successful. And so, you know, mm -hmm. we're out here in Iowa, you know, we really stand out. And so, you know, right. <laughs> we, um, you know, meeting Tynez and meeting other women of color and other men of color, just people of color was helpful for me because I've said many times before, if I didn't have them, I'm pretty sure I'd be right back in Georgia because having that community was huge for me. And again, white students don't get that. Like they don't understand like how much we bond together um, in order to get through programs or to get through anything. And so it's just, it's hard. It's a lot, a lot of hard work. We have to do a lot more and put forth. Uh, more effort than they do uh, to make sure we're successful. Yeah, I was going to. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, but I was just going to uh, add in that um, for me, um, I feel like I see it most. So I'm fairly, pretty much, very introverted, and so being in a field like student affairs that sticks out like a sore thumb a lot of times. Um, yeah. So I think sure. that I've I've had to um, deal with people not necessarily understanding that just because I'm not talking or I'm not, you know, I'm like not, mm. not putting myself out there that that doesn't mean I'm mean or like that doesn't mean that I'm not approachable or that doesn't mean that I don't care about what I'm doing. And so I think that that's been a really hard um, thing and something that I've seen just me personally that I feel like a lot of times when, when I am more to myself or more reserved, then it, get, it gets read a lot differently than if somebody else was the exact same way. And so just being able to, like, figure out a way to remain authentic and remain myself without, but still being able to make other people comfortable, if that makes sense. And so I think, oh, yeah. as a, I think just be, having to constantly 
battle between be myself but make other people comfortable around me. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So was it like a? It's was it like a code switch? I mean, would you all say that it's like a? It's kind of this vacillating, this going back and forth between your authentic self, but then also having to show up in these white identified spaces or these non spaces that are maybe not supportive for our full humanity, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. would it would it be more of a code switch type situation? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily code switching. I I think like when most people think student affairs, they think orientation leaders. Um, and so that's, <laughs> that's, that's not me. Do oh, you want to be a teacher? <laughs> no, no, I do not. <laughs> and so I think that's especially because I'm in a student activities office. Um, and so that's just something that a lot of people associate when you say you want to go into higher ed and student affairs. And so being able to say, mm, I'm not going to necessarily yell in your face, but I'm going to do my job and I really care about what I'm doing. And so having to um, figure out a good balance in that and so being able to still be comfortable in myself but also being able to um, not appear mean or distant or like you know how people say you have an attitude and like all this other stuff and so having to figure out how to present myself to other people without seeming that that's who I am because that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I was going to ask another question, but hearing that, because, you know, it, it does something to me when I have to take the energy to make someone else feel comfortable yeah. about being yeah. around me. So I'm a, I, I want to speak on that a little bit. And when you think about higher education and student affairs, a lot of what we do, um, we have to bring ourselves to the table um, so that we're not operating in a fake um, space, so to speak. And so when you, when you think about when you get ready to graduate and um, you move on to whether it's a student affairs role or faculty or whatever your role may be, how has the experience of graduate school at the master level and doctoral level shifted your mindset and how you present your authentic self in the workplace? For me, um, my authentic self See, the thing with me, y'all, is that I'm always just, you know, like this. <laughs> so sometimes people might have a hard time, like, like I tell Dr. Dixon, well, Dr. K all the time, I say, you know, I get a little intimidated within myself because I have locks, I have a heavy voice or a raspy voice. Um, and sometimes I don't feel like I fit at those tables, you know, with people who don't look like me and resonate with me. Um, because I'm just always like this. And even in my, I'm a, I'm a middle school teacher, but even in my work environment now, it's like, it's always Miss Jones fix your tone. And I'm like, what tone? I don't have a tone. Like, I'm not mad, you know, but it's like the perception of how I speak, I guess. Um, and that has really discouraged me over the years. Um, but as I am learning in this program that I'm in now and getting this experience with Dr. K, I'm learning to accept myself more and I'm learning to just be more authentic and, and show that I am an educated black woman, contrary to what you hear, contrary to what you see or contrary to what you think. Um, Cause I'm very educated. We all are educated women. So how can we bring that to the table in all regards, you know, not just within our masters and doctorate programs. So for me, I'm still in that elevation process of self-acceptance. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and I think for me, just being in this program and taking some of the classes I've taken and talking to um, different people and, and just some like a lot of my social justice classes, what it's helped me to do is just be more vocal. Um, because one thing I tell people is that for years, like growing up, I was very quiet, like just an introvert, didn't say much. Like you'd have to, like, I was just shy. Like you'd have to really like drag stuff out of me. Like I wouldn't say anything. And so things have become more um, obvious here as far as how people feel about me, like what people think about me as a black woman um, in education or just in the world overall. And so it's made me a lot more vocal. Like it's made me speak up on things, things that I typically wouldn't say. I'm like, you know, I'm gonna let somebody else say that. I'm gonna be quiet and see if anybody else says anything. But now I'm like, I need to say something because if I don't, you know, is someone else gonna say anything? And it's like, I can't wait for other people to say stuff. Um, it's very important. And so I don't know if uh, that's gonna be to my detriment. We had a conversation earlier today about a meeting we had a while back where there were some students, students of color who were very vocal about some issues that we found in the school of ed. And we're vocal, like this is a problem, something needs to be handled. And yeah, we were talking about how maybe we were left off, there was a message sent out and there were certain students that were not on the email. And I was like, well, maybe it's because, she was like, well, maybe it's because we were vocal at that meeting. We voiced our concerns about how we felt about certain things, but I'm just like, okay, if that's how you feel, but I'm not gonna be apologetic about it because what I've learned is that when I do sit back and don't say anything, then there's, I don't have a voice. So I don't have that black woman voice at the table. And it's important that we be there because typically we're the only ones in the room. So if we don't say anything, who else is gonna stand up for us? Probably nobody else. Right. Um, and so I've just learned that it's very important that you know you have to say something whether, and I don't know, maybe some people feel like, oh, well think about the consequences, but it's like, you really have to stand up for yourself because nobody else is going to do that. And so I've appreciated that about the program. Like it's helped me to be more vocal. And I think it's gonna really be beneficial for me in my career. Um, my plan is not to be faculty, it's to work in an administrative role. Cause I just, I, I don't know, I guess I wanna be able to do and say what I wanna say. But um, <laughs> like that's, that's really what I wanna do and be able to be vocal about that. So I appreciate you know, what I've been able to learn about that and just speaking up and not holding back. Yeah, to add to that, I would say, um, I, you know, I, as a woman, I just think uh, it's important to recognize that oftentimes we're the ones that's made to feel uncomfortable in certain spaces. And I, technically, I'm done with it, right? If I have to be uncomfortable, everybody in the room is going to be uncomfortable because I'm going to address the elephant in the room, yeah. right? I'm going to say uh, those things that need to be said. Um, I'm not going to do it in an unkind or hurtful way. But I'm going to make sure that everybody, if I have to be uncomfortable, you're going to be uncomfortable too. I'm done protecting white people. Um, I'm done protecting people who are on this anti-black mode, um, anti-woman. Like, if I'm uncomfortable, you're uncomfortable too. Yeah. Yeah. I think we spend a lot of time protecting everybody else in the space. Mm -hmm. And we're left to hold um, all of these emotions and feelings and frustrations and stresses that we know lead to all of these uh, health issues, like we're holding on to that when the, the thing that we can do most is just speak up. You know, we don't have to be angry or mean hearted to do it, but hey, let everybody know what, the, what your truth is, how you're experiencing whatever it is that's going on in the space. Go can forward. I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. um, you said something about like, not being angry you know when we are at tables right but why is it that every time we're at a table 
and we do voice our opinion, be it as respectfully as we possibly can do so. And it still comes <laughs> off like angry black woman. Like, why? And, and, and this is the stereotypes that have been given to us. And so I think that as we try to shine new lights for ourselves, we have to, you know, be dominant. And it's okay to, because you earned your spot at that table. You know what I'm saying? And we don't have to be angry, but why is, how, I, I won't ask why, because that's, that's probably something that we'll never figure out. But what I will ask is how do we change those perceptions of the from being the angry black woman to the educated woman who has a voice of reason. But who's to say that anger can't be used for power? Who's to say that anger needs to be dos diluted? I mean, like I feel like I'm really on this eloquent rage kick. If y'all haven't read that book, read that book. Because eloquent the truth rage. of the matter is that you can use it for power. I think there's this idea that as black women, and whether that's people have been racially primed to see us as lesser than, whether that's the sapphire or the mammy or whatever, but at the end of the day, you cannot, if you are in these spaces and not speaking your authentic self, you're not only harming yourself, but you're harming all the other the people that you have the responsibility over and for. And mm -hmm. so I think the idea that we have to show up kind of subservient or bowing is, yeah. is, is yeah. a white norm, a white hegemonic misogynic, misogynistic norm that we've got to get rid of. And so I think there's a, I, I think we can still show up as our authentic selves and like, yeah, people may see us as angry, whatever, but you're going to respect me with a PA. I got a, I got a doctor in front of my name. So call me Dr. So-and-so. Right? So Dr. Angry. Black one. I'm not going to dilute myself just to make you comfortable. Get uncomfortable with me. And I also, I don't think that's our responsibility to try to put toward or put forth our energy and our effort to make others feel comfortable absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. you know I, I just don't feel like there's a reason for us to be apologetic about who we are or how we come now granted everybody has an attitude you know at some point in time some given day but um when we walk into the room that's all automatically placed on us so who are we to fight what's already been placed on us by people who don't know who we are, you know? So I just, you know. But I need them to see it as passion and not anger. Anger. That's the way I see it. I'm not angry when I say right. this. When I right. say this thing and I'm voicing my opinion. I'm passionate about something. Like if it's something that you've said and I have an opinion about it, I'm going to say it. And maybe if my voice gets a little higher, you know, you hear a little, you know, inflection or something in my voice. Like I'm passionate about this subject. That doesn't make me angry. And anybody who knows me, it takes a lot to make me angry. Mm -hmm. And I'm not angry. I'm passionate. I'm in education because of the type of work that I've, like what I'm, what I want to do and why I've been in education for so long is because I'm passionate about working with students. I'm passionate about the work that I do. And there's a difference, but like you said, I mean, there's no need for us to be apologetic about it. Like, they don't get us. They don't understand how we express ourselves. I get all of you. I get how you express yourselves and what you're saying and how we're talking to each other. They may sense that as an attitude, but that's how we talk. We talk with our hands. We move our heads. We do whatever. That's how we right. talk to each other. That's how we're right. It's like, it's not the culture. It's the culture. It's the culture. So, like, sensitive about stuff. And it's just like, you know, but I could talk all day about that, so. <laughs> well, I think um, that the problem stems from, like, 
someone said earlier, this is a predominantly white male field, mm -hmm. and I'm learning that in my higher ed program. Mm -hmm. And so we have to, I took a class um, last semester, and it was called uh, Women in Adult Ed, and how like we have just been so made invisible. Um, in this, not just women of color, a lot of women of color, but not just women of color. We've been made so invisible in this field. And I just think it's important that we, you know, start to be comfortable and break those barriers. And I'm really talking to myself too, because, you know, I've had my own insecurities and still do. And um, just being on this podcast with you all is just making me really spit my, my thoughts out, you know, um, in a way that I probably haven't thought about it before, but when you are ready to take a seat at the table or at any table, my philosophy is that you need to be able to bring something to that table because you just might be the one to change the setting of the table. Mm -hmm. And so um, with me thinking that way and just hearing y'all, because y'all just y'all just gave me that. I just want y'all to know y'all gave me that. I gave it right back. I gave it right back. <laughs> <laughs> but like yes but like we have to be willing to bring something to the table that is going to change that setting because you know that little arrangement in the middle just might not be right for the for the dinner that we cooking up you know what i mean so i'm i'm excited uh i'm excited that this is happening and that you ladies have put this platform together um we need it we need it we need it so, okay, so my question then is, you know, we know that sometimes when we walk into these spaces, they're not already created for us, or, you know, we don't already have a seat at the table, or, you know, within our programs, it's hard for us to, I don't know how, how, to, how to describe it, but anyway, so when we're in those spaces, um, what are some ways that you all, um, as Black women, find support and validation within your process, whether that's in your job or within your program? I think for me, I think the first thing I thought about when you said that was finding a community, so finding other women of color. Mm -hmm. That has been difficult here. We have a community here, but it's like super small, mm -hmm. but it's, it's helpful to have someone like Tanez and to have the other women of color. One thing I've done is I have mentors and that's, and I'm sure you all have mentors. That's one thing that's been helpful for me. Like if I didn't have my mentors to reach out to and they are black women, who are in higher education and who are doing very well in their careers. Like if I didn't have that, that would be, it would be hard for me. So like they have also helped me with being more vocal um, and being able to say, okay, well, Carmen, what is it that you want? What is it that you are trying to achieve? And like, okay, this is how you do this. Like you need to make sure you do this or do that. And just having someone, like you said, to validate you and to validate like, hey, what I'm feeling is a real thing. Um, and I think that's just been super helpful because I mean, I can't stress it enough, just being able to have maybe like what I'll do with Tanez is before I go into a meeting where I know I may be having some anxiety about something or frustrated, I'll talk to Tanez first. That'll calm me down. Tanez will say, do what you say, jumping jacks or do some push-ups or something so I can get ready for the meeting, like whatever it is to calm me down. But I just need someone who understands me, who looks like me, who knows what I'm going through um, in order to say, okay, this is what you got to do. Like you got this. And just someone saying, you know, you are, you're great. You, you know, validating me. And that's been super helpful because I don't know that, well, honestly, I don't, I'm pretty sure that they won't, white people aren't going to do that for us. They're not going to validate us. We have to do that for ourselves. Um, and so, like I said, having someone like Tanez or just other women of color and having you guys, because I'm sure we can all build a connection from this point on, just being able to reach out and say, hey, I need your help with this. Or I need to talk with you about this. Like that has been really 
really helpful for me to have people who look like me say, hey, you got this, like you, you, you're gonna do this. It's been really, really beneficial. I also think um, family plays a huge role um, in, in helping you navigate um, and feel, feel like you belong in the space that you're in. Like I think having the support of family, we, when we do our research with uh, science bound students, that's usually the main thing until students can learn how to build the identity of rather STEM or educators or whatever, usually it's the family that plays the huge, a huge role in trying to get them to the space where they can learn how to see themselves um, as they are. And so I really find along with creating a community of other sisters uh, that you can lean upon, um, also leaning upon the belief that your family have in you as a black woman that you can do uh, the work. And usually they don't know like what you're experiencing in the program, mm -hmm. but they like, you can do it. I know you can do it, um, <laughs> you know, but they, they give you this, this belief that, you know, you can just conquer whatever it is that you're after. So I think having those two things uh, a close community that can help build you up and having family are a really important component. Yeah, I, I definitely agree um, with that. And I think um, something else um, that's been really big for me is just seeking out, um, I guess, like networking opportunities, but like in less formal ways. So um, like using things like GroupMe or um, like Facebook groups or um, following different people on Twitter um, and things like that. Um, and just attending different events that are more local. And so just getting to know um, people in different areas, different departments. Um, and just through that, I've been um, really blessed enough to just be able to find um, mentors at different schools. Um, so not just at the school met, but like more in the metro Atlanta area and things like that. And so um, definitely, um, and being more cognizant about who it is that like, I'm reaching out to, and so definitely a lot of uh, women and men, both, both Black men and women, and so just being able to talk to them. I'm really big on, like, listening to people, and, like, I just love hearing people talk about themselves, and so just being able to, like, hear other people's journeys and, like, how they've been able to, like, come up and how they've been able to create a pathway for themselves, for me personally, is just really inspiring and really helps me to kind of stay on my track and kind of stay focused and everything like that. I would also say networking, um, just to kind of piggyback off of Brianna. Um, I've learned the importance of networking, mainly in grad school. I heard about it in undergrad, but I did not take it as seriously as I should have. So I'm learning how to be connected. <laughs> and uh that those connections will be the communities that I build. Um, I realized that higher ed is such a broad field that like how we're all on here right now, we all over the place, you know? <laughs> that's that's the type of connections that I want to have. I, I definitely believe it's more important than just you making those direct connections in your immediate program. Mm -hmm. So speaking of connections, are there any um, organizations or associations that you all would recommend for uh, master's level or doctoral level students who are listening? Uh, I would definitely. So something that um, I got to get involved in this past school year. Um, so NACA um, has an engaged program. It was brand new this school year, um, but it was really cool. Um, they had a lot of professionals who were participating in it. And so through that, I was able to, um, like, mock it. Like, right now, we're doing mock interviews. So, like, we got to choose what different types of um, 
positions you'd be interested in. And so um, people are interviewing you um, and giving you feedback. Um, we got to do informal interviews where we got to just talk to other people who are already in the field and kind of get a feel for how they got there. Uh, resume critiques and cover letter critiques um, and just being able to be connected to other people. So I think um, that was a really cool, um, <laughs> I guess, membership that I was able to be a part of this year. And it wasn't really anything that was too taxing. Mm -hmm. um, it's just when they had something come up, you could sign up for it or you cannot sign up for it. So definitely really good as far as professional development. Um, what, is NACA, what is NACA um, for? It's a National Association of Campus Activities. Okay. But it's not just for like, you don't have to want to necessarily go into student activities to be a part of the program that they have. Um, they have people that worked in different functional areas that were acting as like, I guess, mentors um, and professionals for the program. Organizations that I would want to join, because I have not yet, but I've been doing research, ACPA. Um, they do have like the professional level and of course the student level. Um, I'm still a student. I am looking into getting into the student portion, but I would hope to take that to a professional level following graduation and perhaps maybe see about getting on one of their boards, maybe. Um, and NASPA's good, but I really am hearing a lot about ACPA in my program. So as far as organizations, um, well, Tierra mentioned NASPA. NASPA has been the conference that's been really beneficial for me in student affairs. Um, ASH as well, so the Association for the Study of Higher Education. Um, their conference is usually in the fall. Um, I'm trying to think, NCORE is one, um, but that's just that's the conference, not so much the actual organization. But I would say ASH and NASPA have been beneficial for me um, because, I mean, conferences for me are really about, you know, it's about going to the sessions, but the networking and meeting people literally all over the country. So um, it's been helpful to, you know, meet people and then they say, oh, I, you can meet this person or just that networking piece. Um, and, you know, when they have like the, the different socials or whatever in the evening, like being able to like interact with people. So the sessions are always great, but I really love conferences for the networking part, like being able to meet people. So I'm that person who like, I'll see the black woman. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go talk to her. Like she's like a VP of diversity because that's my goal one day. Like she's a vice president of diversity or a dean of diversity or she's this or, you know, whatever the goal is. And it's been really helpful for me to meet in individuals, Black women specifically, who are in these roles to kind of understand what they um, have done in their careers to get where they are. And I just love that they're so open to taking on, you know, additional like mentees or just working professionals like myself who are, you know, trying to get to where they are. So I'd say NASPA and ASH have probably been uh, the most beneficial for me. Yeah, I would say those those same ones, uh, but because I'm not uh, ingrained in um student affairs and higher ed. Um, I, I was also a part of here at Iowa State, and I don't know if most universities offer it, but we have a graduate student run journal, peer review journal. Um, and so I was the, the editor um, for that journal uh, for about a year and a half. Um, and you kind of get to go through the editorial process, especially if you're thinking about being fa faculty in some capacity um, where, you know, we have these big name and, and some newer researchers that are submitting research to us, to our little journal, online journal, and we're sending it out for peer review. And so we're getting to see that process from beginning to end and kind of getting a realistic expectation of what it looks like to publish, who might be finding, who might be some of the bigger names uh, in the area that you're writing about. 
um, and reaching out to them maybe to review papers and so forth. So that's been a, a good aspect or organization, I think, as a graduate student to be able to be a part of. Awesome. So I'm really big on professional development and networking. So I was listening a lot. Yep. That I have never been to Ash. I'm not a member of Ash, but it is um, to do list. To, to it's do one list. of the cheaper ones. You should join. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it's eighty five as opposed. To, no, it might be less than that, but it's not. It's one of the more uh, like the cheaper ones. Conference too. So membership and the conference is a little bit cheaper than some of the other ones. Well, that I would do then. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great to know that even though you're going through the process of classes and you know for you all that are doc, doc students writing, getting ready to write the dissertation if you haven't even started. Um, and then for the master level, thesis, comps, all of those that you still find the time to develop yourself outside of the classroom as you prepare for the workplace. In my master's, doing my master's, I did not do that. And going um, for my doc, I don't know whether I was coming or going, so I don't. <laughs> I didn't do a whole lot of anything in, in that atmosphere. Yeah, I think for me, it's been mostly like going to more local conferences because um, the budget they give us is not that um, luxurious. So, <laughs> so um, being able to find things that are more local yes. and then um, we had a spring practicum requirement and so I chose instead of just doing my spring practicum on campus, I chose to do a, a different school um, in the city, and so I was able to do my spring practicum at Georgia Tech while still working at West Georgia. So um, for me, that was really cool too. So just being able to kind of network, but also learn like how different schools work and different things like that. And so for me, that was a really big um, opportunity for professional development because I was able to meet um, a lot of people at both schools and kind of learn how different schools run depending on like the type of students that go there and different things like that. So. I want to I want to ask one last question before we start um, um, wrapping up. If you can kind of just briefly talk about some of the self care tips or things that you've done um, throughout your um, academic journey thus far with our listeners, that would be great. Um, so for me, self care has been. Uh, just being active, like staying active. So I'm a runner. And so typically when I'm stressed out, I go for a run um, or do crazy things like sign up for runs where you run across the state of Iowa. Um, it's called Relay Iowa, um, where you run across the state of Iowa in three days. But running like 10Ks, 5Ks, half marathons, like that gives me like time to think. Um, and so just being able to run when it's actually nice weather here in Iowa, that has been really helpful for me. It's such a stress reliever. Um, and also kickboxing. So before I got to Iowa, I had never done that before, but um, joined a kickboxing gym and I would recommend that to anybody. If you have any stress in your life, I just, <laughs> they always say, take it out on the bag. And Lord knows that I do. I take it out on the bag. So it's been a huge, huge deal for me to be able to do that. Um, and just making sure I'm in contact with my friends and family. Um, FaceTiming my family and my best friends are extremely important for me because I need to laugh. I need some comfort. I need some help. Um, and just being able to talk to them and be in contact with them constantly is very helpful for me. So that's been very beneficial. Um, and other things as far as self-care, just doing things I enjoy doing. So whether it's, you know, movies or trying new food, I love trying new food. Um, that's about it. I mean, I just want to make sure that I'm, you know, taking care of myself. So one thing I've realized in this time here, 
I don't always have to do things like with people. I don't always have to be in a group. I'm fine doing things by myself. And I've learned that I love that. Like it's like that whole independence of being on my own, doing things and just being in, like doing what I want to do. And that's what makes me happy. Um, and so, yeah, that's been really helpful just to make sure that I'm not stressed out. Um, and of course, prayer, like that's always important because Lord knows I just, I need it. I need it every single day. It's hard being away from right. my family. This program um, can be difficult. So just making sure, you know, I'm staying, I'm praying, um, and then mental health. So one thing I don't, um, that I do make sure that people understand that, you know, taking care of our mental health is very important. Um, and so having someone, having a counselor, and that's been extremely beneficial for me. I think a lot of times people kind of frown upon that and say, well, why do you need to do that? What's the point of having a counselor? Why do you need a therapist? Whatever. If I didn't have her, I don't know where, where I'd be. And so being able to talk with someone who just gives me a lot of guidance, a lot of help, um, and just, you know, gives me just that space to say whatever I want and be emotional and be, be me, that has been very beneficial for me. So I'm extremely grateful for those, for that opportunity to be able to have someone in my corner who I can talk to. Awesome. I think she said everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, most of those are my practices as well. Um, I make sure daily um, that I spend time in prayer and I have time of reflection because I think that's where all my ideas and creativity come from. Uh, during those moments, I do spend time in the word of God trying to dissect scripture and how it applies to, to my life and my day, um, the direction that I'm choosing to take. Um, I exercise, uh, weight lift, do um, yoga and I can't run. I just had Achilles surgery, but I don't run like her. She's crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, she's good. Uh, I'm more of a sprinter when I do run, uh, but, you know, just spend time exercising or, or just doing basic physical activity. So just make sure that I'm walking around, uh, whether it's the building or whatever. Um, I'm learning the art of thankfulness, of learning to just find that space to be thankful every day. Um, about the things that I'm experiencing, the people that I get to be around, um, the things that I'm learning from others, uh, and even the things that I get to share. So whatever wisdom that I have, uh, just learning to be thankful for all those things because I know that it doesn't directly come from me. So um, I love spending time with my family and friends, which to me is self-care um, because being in Iowa, you would find that you often feel like when you leave your home, like you're on for the day, like the movie camera has started and you have to be, um, as black women are, you have to be everything to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and so, right. um, so I enjoy the spaces that I do have where I just feel like I can turn the camera off and it's just me and them and just be fully all of who I am because as much as you try to implement all of who you are in the spaces that you're in, whether on campus or in the classroom, you still feel like you're under a microscope, right? And so, um, so I do find time to spend with family. I enjoy a good laugh. So I'm always trying to find um, videos, whether on Instagram or Twitter, uh, that are comedic in nature so that I can laugh from my gut. I mean, and just laugh really loud. Um, <laughs> Because it's helpful. It's helpful for me. I like to be silly. Um, and so Carmen knows I'll sit in the office and she'll just hear me laughing super loud. She's like, what? What did you find? <laughs> Sometimes you need that. You need yeah, that. Absolutely. So those are some of the, the practices I try to have uh, for, for self-care.
Yeah. And then, and then with that, like, is there any, like, what music um, is kind of like speaking to you right now? Because you know, as you guys know, that we have um, a Spotify and we're trying to update it with whatever our guests like, the music that's singing to them, speaking to their souls, right? Like, so what music right now are you listening to um, that's just really doing that for you right now? Khalid, listen to his new album. He's amazing. <laughs> I love him. Khalid, go listen to it. <laughs> um, I don't know um, how uh, perfect this is, but uh, <laughs> I, love Meg, I, I love Meg Thee Stallion, and she just came out with an album today. Uh-huh. So if you want anything that's uplifting or some music to listen to in the gym, um, I think also I've been playing Homecoming like nonstop. Oh, so, home, <laughs> so homecoming has been really um really who was the first person home. you said sorry i couldn't hear you oh megan the stallion megan the stallion okay mm-hmm. yeah so <laughs> she just had an album come out today it's great y'all should go listen to it but <laughs> I, yeah i think uh I, I tend to lean a little bit old school so <laughs> you know um i i had a list so i have like cc winans um, Jill Scott, Lauren Hill. I mm. love Molly Music. Mm. Um, yeah. Ty Delaney, SZA. Yeah. I always got to go with them. <laughs> I, I got to go with them ballads. With I, I, I'm gonna pull up some Whitney Houston <laughs> so that I can just hear somebody hit some notes that not many oh. people today are hitting. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm from Southside, <laughs> so I tend to lean toward that house music, that street music. Um, that make you dance so like when you finish your workout and I'm in my basement when I finish my workout so I can just pump up my house music and then just jack my body and move my body (laughs) so yeah honestly right now (laughs) I'm not really hip to any new music but anything that is in that jazz classical kind of feel it inspires me just through the way that the instrument sounds um i'm not really into worded music right now um but i don't know it's something about the way that the saxophones play or sometimes i like mozart just because it you know raises my brain waves but that would be it why it inspires me i think because the messages that most music sends to my subconscious would not put me where I want to be. So I just kind of tune that out and put myself in a place of, I just want to hear the actual music. <laughs> you all also have any books that you're reading or that you would recommend for other black women to read? Oh my gosh, there's so many. <laughs> um, so I have a habit of downloading audiobooks that I don't have time to read, but they're all amazing. <laughs> So I'm going to give you like a couple. Me um, too. I need to stop downloading them, but they keep giving me credit. So like, I just got to keep that. They're free. So I was like, well, not really free, but they kind of are. So of course, Becoming, Rebecoming, um, Homegoing, a novel. Um, and I can email to you, email these to you too, if you want. My Sister, the Serial Killer. It does not sound like what the title says, <laughs> but these are black women authors. Like they're so good. Um, this will be My Undoing um, by Morgan Jenkins. Um, and then the other one that's really good, which I, oh, Born a Crime. Oh my gosh, it's really good. Trevor Noah, I'm obsessed with him, but it's a really good story. Um, and I think that's it. Heavy is another one, but those are some of the ones I would definitely recommend. So Homecoming, home, home going, 
a novel. The other one is This Will Be My Undoing, My Sister the Serial Killer, oh, Silver Sparrow, Tayari Jones. So if you like Tayari Jones, she's the one who wrote about um, an American marriage. American marriage was good. Sorry, I have way too many books. My mom's a librarian, so reading is like a thing for me. So seriously, there are so many great ones, but those are some of mine. Yeah, and I think I just had two. So I had Becoming on that list um, and by Michelle Obama and then Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. And that's kind of a, a heavy read, but, um, but it's good. It talks about the history of um, medical research in the United States that was done on and uh, not for, but on Black women, particularly in Black communities of color. Read Roxane Gay books, and I'm done, I promise. Roxane Gay, love her books. <laughs> Bad Feminists, all her books. She's great. Awesome. Yeah, and anything by Bell Hooks oh, yeah. is, is really good. You can't go wrong with it, so. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to, um, yeah, I'm going to definitely have to get all of those. <laughs> Especially <laughs> the cereal. My sister's a cereal. <laughs> it's interesting. Like it's, it's people are like, why are you? Reading? I just love, and I love audiobooks. Like they're telling a story, and like to hear someone like it's so interesting. I love it. Yeah, I I was gonna say becoming because that um that's also one of the um, last books I just read, and then also um Blackball by Lawrence Ross. Um, that's another book I recently read, and it was really really good too. Mm-hmm. As uh, Blackball, the Black and White Politics of Race on American Campuses. Yeah, that's a good one. Right now, I am currently reading The Four Agreements by Don Ruiz. That is a reread. <laughs> um, the 48 Laws of Power is on my reading list. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And um, that's it right now that I'm actually really paying attention to as far as what I'm reading. Um, some things I do just pick up here and there. Between the World and Me. My Tenacy Coats, I forgot to mention that. I am reading that as well. Um, other things I just pick up, but more specifically, I'm reading those books right now because I am in a place where I'm trying to understand my place as a Black woman in the world. So I look at the Between the World and Me from a female perspective, um, although I know that it originated as a letter to his son. The Four Agreements just kind of teaching me how to deal with my everyday life, um, attracting the things that I want, while not taking personally the things that do not harvest what I want. And 48 Laws is just teaching me how to deal with people, situations, professionally. Um, And as I just try to develop personally. And Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a read that I recommend if you come from, well, really any you know, background, but specifically for me, uh, lower income background people who do not on a daily basis get those financial literacy tools that are necessary to sustain in the real world. Um, so it's a good book to read if you're looking to learn how to manage your money better or how to implement different business models and understand how you can get from this level to that level without having to demoralize yourself. So. Those are my current reads. What does this podcast mean to you all? Um, And then also, I would love for you all to highlight um, the Black women that you chose to celebrate. Uh, I think this this podcast is is beneficial. I think you guys have created a space um, for Black women voices that often go unheard. it was one that I added to my list along with Truth Table. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that, but um, 
but just want to really give you guys a shout out for creating this space for um, I know it's not just black graduate students, but even this opportunity to be able to share um, some of the black uh, graduate student experience and, and highlight, you know, some of the challenges that we experience. Um, I really want to thank you guys for that opportunity. Um, the black woman that I chose was my mom and her name's Gwendolyn Mae Thomas. Um, and she has just been uh, everything that I needed to persist to this space that I'm in um, as a graduate student, um, as a mom, as a wife, um, as one who is an influencer of, of culture and the next generation um, in being able to practice um, equitable and just principles, uh, not just in the classroom, but hoping that I can be an influencer that would influence their careers post-classroom. So um, I just wanted to highlight her today because of the work that she was able to show forth to me that now I'm able to give out to the students that I get an opportunity to teach in the classroom and the research that I would do in the future. Um, for me, what this podcast means to me is just having people who get me means a lot to me. And so, you know, we talked about authenticity, just being myself. I can't really, uh, what, it's hard to do that. It really is hard to do that in Iowa, um, in space, education spaces. And so I appreciate you guys starting this podcast. I think it's great because it gives us a voice, um, you know, having other people listen and really understand our experiences. So again, just having someone who gets me and can relate to me means the world to me. And I am so very appreciative of you guys doing this and inviting us. Like this really means a lot to have this opportunity. Um, as far as the people I chose, I thought they had to be in education. So I went with my mentor, Arnita Howard. Um, who works at Emory University as one of the assistant deans of, um, I think it's student affairs is her title. And then my other, I had another one, Linnell Cadre. Um, I didn't send her picture, but she's the vice provost um, at Emory, Emory University. And they are two of the most unapologetic black women I've ever met. And they are so strong and they've gotten so far in their careers and have just been absolutely amazing to me. And it's been really great to have such positive role models um, you know, in the field of education and who can just, I can lean on for support and I know that I can count on them um, and their help and their guidance and their support. So um, I'm just trying to make them proud. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, this podcast uh, means it's, I feel like it's an opportunity to just be and be comfortable in that. Um, and so just being able to like have these types of conversations um, and not feel like any type of pressure or um, just to be able to just be and be honest and be authentic in that um, is what this podcast means. And I know I, I remember listening to the first episode and like something where you can just be like, yes, like <laughs> as you're listening to it. Um, so <laughs> um, that's just really important to me. And I feel like important for a lot of other people who don't always feel like their, vers their um, voices are being heard. Um, especially in places where they might not be able to be as loud. Um, and I guess for the person I wanted to highlight, Miss Tania or uh, Tania Lowry, um, she is the MPHC advisor at the uh, University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Um, and so she was MPHC advisor during my time at UT. And so um, I think Tania is just a very passionate person. Um, and so um, just being able to kind of see that and how she's able to pour into students, not only in the NPAC and MGC community, but just students in general um, was just really um, important to me and kind of 
one of the um, leading factors into me wanting to go into student affairs um, and also just um, pouring into pouring into students also pouring into me and so now I feel like I have to um, pay that back um, and so being able to help other students kind of become themselves and I know I touched on it earlier um, but like I took some time off for like mental health reasons and stuff but uh, when I came back that following semester she was like one of the first people to like kind of just welcome me back and get me back acclimated and throw me right back into the council again <laughs> um, and so I'm um, just being able to be be that and see how um, her passion transcends um, throughout the entire campus for me um, was really cool to see an undergrad and now being in a position to where I'll kind of be in that same professional setting um, soon just kind of wanting to be able to be that for other students. Okay so what Black Women Voices podcast means to me is we have so much to offer um we have voices that need to be heard just going back to earlier in the podcast not being looked upon as that angry black woman but being able to make your voice heard at the table and make it known just in your very presence like i am here i was here finding a mark um for ourselves as black women and i think this podcast is truly amazing i again am very elated to be a part of it um i think what you all are doing for women in higher ed especially black women in higher ed is remarkable because it lets people like myself know and other people who may aspire to know that we do have possibilities to break any barrier you know that we want and that just takes me right into uh, the Black woman that I wanted to recognize, which is my godmother. Her name is Tarlisha Mack. Um, she became my godmother because my dad asked her to. And Dr. K, you know, we've talked about that uh, circumstance, you know, him being very absent. But one thing that I can say is that I believe that the universe gives us what we need at all times and um in his absence you know me being nearly 27 she has been there for all 27 of those years anything that i've needed my children what have you and when i was young they met at A&T. and so my history at A&T stems literally through my bloodline so they met at A&T and they were best friends and um she had some struggles in undergrad like myself we are very much alike. Our birthdays are two days apart. But she persevered and she got out of there uh, when it was all said and done. And she's very successful now, um, doing a lot of great things. You know, she has her finance, her finances managed very well. And I'm just looking at her example in every light um, because where I come from, you know, going to college is unheard of. Going to college is a hope and a dream. <laughs> You know, you make it there, like, whether you do it by scholarship, financial aid, your parents working for you to get it, like, it's a hope and a dream. So she was one of the people who really planted that seed in me that college was something that will make me be successful. Is that my mindset now? No. Um, but for me, I love it, and I love the path that I'm going on. So for me, it has brought me many successes, and a lot of that I can you know, give thanks to her for. Y'all are amazing. 
<laughs> Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Black Women Voices. Be sure to check us out on SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Black Women Voices and Facebook Black Women Voices. Also, check out our music playlist on Spotify entitled Black Women Voices.